Well, let's open our Bibles. Today's title is Mercy for His Enemies. Mercy for His Enemies. We're going to be looking at Jonah 3, verses 1 through 10. Jonah 3, verses 1 through 10. If you don't know where that is, most people know where the book of Matthew is. Find Matthew in the New Testament. Go left about seven books, or depending on your translation, flip over about 66 or so pages, and you'll be somewhere in Jonah. While you're hunting for that, or if you found it, or just scroll down uh, on, your, on your device like I do. Um, have you ever noticed how unbelievers sometimes seem to respond to God better than Christians do? Or how about this? Have you ever noticed that some unbelievers seem to respond to God better than you do? Better than I do? I don't know how it is here. I have, I, you know, I know Catholic friends that they're, they're not Christians. Again, not every Roman, I'm not saying anything about the Catholic Church, but they don't happen to be Christians, but they attend Mass more than some Christians attend Sunday morning service. They would never participate in an abortion, and yet Christians do. I have friends from where I'm from and where my family's from, in the deep south, that nobody, we don't have to evangelize a soul. Everybody's a Christian. Everybody. And everybody's a Baptist. So what Catholics are here, Baptists are there. And, uh, and, and they have a worldview that's informed by Scripture. They'll go do a lot of things on Friday and Saturday night, but there are some things they absolutely will not do. And I, I can respect that. You, you see that they, their ethics, both, both groups I just talked about, Roman Catholics that are not saved and Baptists that are not saved, both are religious and their ethics, their morals, they're informed, genuinely informed by God's word. They, they fear God in some sense. They don't want something bad to happen to them. They don't want to get on the wrong side of the man upstairs. They fear God, but if you notice, they don't, follow God. They fear God in a limited sense, but they don't follow God. And yet God blesses them with just that that amount of the word absorbed into their lifestyle. God blesses them with a, a category called common grace, that there's the grace of God given to humanity. And certain things go better when we do his will, his way. That common grace, sadly though, sometimes shames me when I find that they respond to that common grace better than I do to his word and his spirit living inside of me. Sometimes I just want to look and go, shame on me. And we're going to find a snapshot of that today in our text. But before we go on, let us read God's word together. So I'm going to read Jonah 3, verses 1 through 10 out of the ESV. And I invite you to read along with me. If you don't have a Bible today, just look, just look to your left or right. Somebody beside you will either have one in paper, that old-fashioned way, or they'll have a device that they can share with you. So just look on and let's read together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster which he had said he would do to them, as he, and he did not do it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now, we're going to look at three points that will be on the screen here. We're going to look at three points today. Jonah responds. That's verses 1 through 4. Now, I know I'm cutting the text differently than how you're reading it, but there's a point, a method to the madness. Jonah responds, verses 1 through 4. Then Nineveh repents, verses 5 through 9. And finally, God relents. And before we go forward, let's pray. Lord, help me help us. We have all had probably just crazy weeks, and we come here discouraged. We come here distracted. We come here doing great. Lord, we're in a variety of places. But Lord, wherever we find ourselves, let us give us the grace, Lord, to to focus. Let Let us hear. Let us understand. Then let us do and transmit your word, we pray. Lord, we need your help, but we know you're anxious to give us your help. Lord, help us, we pray. Help me to preach. Help all of us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You know what? Let me put one last tagline on the prayer one more time. Lord, make us merciful like you are. Lord, do that today by reminding us afresh of your mercy. Lord, what we behold, who we behold, we become. Lord, we trust you, Holy Spirit, to make us merciful by reminding us of what God has done for us in Christ. An amazing mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we dive into today's text, let's take a few moments and let's reacquaint ourselves with a few fast facts about the folks from Nineveh. We're looking at Nineveh. Let's find out and remind ourselves who they were. Remember, they were the Assyrians. So it's in Iraq, where modern-day Iraq is, so it's up in that neck of the woods. So these Assyrians, they were the Ninevites, or vice versa. The Assyrian Empire, remember, was an evil Empire, And it was well known throughout that part of the land for its aggressive and arrogant violence. But this evil and arrogant empire was in serious trouble. This king ruled over a troubled kingdom. And he had powerful, but not necessarily loyal, regional officials ruling underneath him. And to top it off, they weren't necessarily loyal. And there were revolts happening all over the empire. If that's not enough, the empire was also facing famines and plagues. And some of these famines and plagues were accompanied by eclipses, which people would take as portents or signs of doom and gloom. Remember, they worshipped all kinds of things, stars, moon, sun, Venus, whatever. They worshipped a variety of things, animals and plants. And when there was an eclipse that happened during a famine, there were times they would immediately assume the king should be deposed and killed just because of the eclipse that happened. Nineveh, though, was one of the empire's principal cities, one of three primary cities. It was very large for that day. It was very influential. And it was a religious city with temples to a variety of gods. It was also a commercial city, teeming with violence and vice. Sound like where we live? The Assyrian people were enemies of Israel. An enemy who would, in just a few decades from our reading, finally and fully eradicate what's known as the Northern Kingdom. They would completely destroy and deport all the inhabitants. Israel by then was divided into two kingdoms with two different capitals, Judah, which we know, and the Northern Kingdom, which was most of the ten tribes. And in just a few decades, these same people, the Assyrians, probably some of the actual Ninevites that Jonah is preaching to, would go down the way and destroy the northern kingdom, all because God's people, those people then, had become increasingly hard-headed and increasingly hard-hearted towards God. 
hard-hearted and hard-headed towards God, toward his message, and towards his messengers, the prophets. So this book, the book of Jonah, it serves several purposes simultaneously. Primarily, it's doing what we're talking about. It displays the mercy and compassion of God towards these arrogant and evil Gentiles. It, it prefigures, it looks ahead to the merciful, saving work of God in Christ to all the Gentiles. With its availability, not just to Jews, and it is and was, but to all of humanity. But it also, and particularly in this chapter, it serves as a critique to Israel, the Israel of that day, the intended audience who was hearing it read on the scroll. It was seeking to to prod them, to respond to God by showing them and, and actually shaming them. It was informing them that God's enemies, the Ninevites, were responding to God's mercy in ways that Israel no longer desired to do. It had the effect of my illustration. I'm watching somebody else do something I'm not willing to do. And that shames me and prods me to, oh Lord, if a pagan can do that, oh my. And that was one of the intended effects that this book was to have. Now, let's jump into the text. So, Jonah responds. Whoop, keep going. There we go. Jonah responds, verses 1 through 4. Now, we're going to have bobbleheads today. We're going to look in the text and then look up. So, let's pop down to the text again. I want to remind us where we are. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Remember, we last left Jonah on dry land right by the water's edge with his great sea creature swimming back out to sea. Jonah had come face to face with a death that he actually richly deserves. As a matter of fact, in Kings, you find a prophet that disobeyed God much less than Jonah did, and he was killed by a lion. Jonah knew that he deserved death. He had come face to face with death. But something expected, unexpected takes place. We we get that he'd been the recipient of God's mercy. We expected Jonah to respond to this discipline of the Lord. But at least me, I don't expect what happens next. God recommissions this formerly rebellious and still reluctant prophet. Jonah is recommissioned. He's back on mission. He's heading towards Nineveh. He's truly repented. He's obeying the word of the Lord for the time being anyway. For as we'll discover next week, his repentance, this is very important, his repentance, though genuine, is partial. His repentance, though genuine, is short-lived. And yet, this all-knowing and all-seeing God recommissions him. God is as patient with his prophet as as, as he is with his people. Even when his people, remember the other audience, Israel, Even when his people require strong discipline, he is still ever the compassionate father whose grace led Jonah, could lead them, and can lead you to repentance, to forgiveness, to restoration. And perhaps for some here, you need to hear this, to further usefulness in his kingdom. The prophet Jonah had been in serious rebellion, but not as bad as the apostle Peter. Remember how Peter denied Jesus three times? Even the final time, calling down a curse on himself. You could read it either way. He called down a curse on himself or just cussed, or he called down a curse on Christ. He did something really bad. He was an apostate. He should have. Oh, when, when Jesus was resurrected, remember how he told at the, at the tomb? He said, listen, tell all the guys and especially Peter. I'm going to go before them into Galilee. Galilee was the place where Jesus first commissioned the apostles. 
He was reminding. Remember the apostles had all fled. John was there with, with uh, Jesus' mother. Peter, Peter tells us later, he was off in the distance. But Peter the apostate, Peter the denier of Christ, Peter the one that was so cocksure he would do anything, Peter who knew everything and could do all things, and then just ran and cried. Tell Peter he's going to get recommissioned too. See, if I was Peter, when I, when I found out from one of the ladies that, or John when he came, Jesus is resurrected, that's not good news. <laughs> the one I said was not the Christ with a curse, the one I said I don't know him, the one I said I don't have anything to do with him, the one who denied him, that one, you know that one, he's resurrected. Yay, no, not yay. Peter knew Daniel, the Son of Man's coming for judgment in the clouds. Peter knew his goose was cooked. And yet, what did Jesus do? Tell Peter, tell them all, they've all run, going back to the place of recommissioning. But listen, tell Peter especially. And then, you know, fast forward, Peter's walking along the beach, John's back there, he's walking with Jesus. He denies him three times, Jesus recommissions him one for one. Peter got to reap what he sowed, but not as bad as he deserved. If God is merciful towards his enemies, how much more to us here who are his children? Can God rehabilitate his rebellious and reluctant children? Well, of course he can. Ask Jonah, ask Peter. You're not automatically, listen carefully, particularly those of you that are struggling with this. You've done something stupid and sinful. You did it 15 years ago. You got somebody pregnant. You got an abortion. You, you did something that you're ashamed of that not many people, maybe no one, but the Lord knows. But you've truly repented. You're not that person and you think now, because of that, you are doomed forever to a second-rate Christian life. Well, if you've done and repented of something really, really stupid, you may reap the consequences, but our merciful and compassionate God will never leave you. Just what the prophetic word said, will never forsake you. And he won't place you permanently on the shelf. He'll still recommission you. He'll still use you. He's not done with you. Ask Jonah. Ask Peter. I tell you, God, make me, as, make me merciful like you. Lord, and do that by reminding me of your mercy to me because of Christ. But back to our story. When Jonah arrives at Nineveh, he begins preaching the message that God has given him. Hmm. Think about it. This is Jonah the Jew, Nineveh the Assyrians. One guy taking on a town of 120,000 people. An unpopular message of gloom and doom is going to be preached to a large, prosperous, violent, evil city filled with folks who are at odds with the Jews who could care less about God and who will not be at all happy with Jonah. If Jonah thought being swallowed up by some sea creature while drowning in the ocean was scary, he hasn't seen anything yet compared to being swallowed up by an entire city. But this evil city was owned by God as all cities and all peoples are. And God had decided to have mercy on that evil city by sending a messenger to threaten it with a message proclaiming the total destruction that it so richly deserved. A merciful threat coupled with the merciful power of God himself delivered the foolishness of Jonah's preaching. Nineveh now knew they were sitting on a ticking time bomb, 40 days from delivery to destruction. And it was a terrible destruction because the same word, overthrown, was the word 
that was used to Sodom and Gomorrah. Jonah had fulfilled his mission. He was simply to deliver the message. The results were not up to him. But that simple and unpopular message delivered. You see, that's us preaching the gospel. Simple, unpopular, results not up to us. Scared to death, reluctant, sometimes rebellious. We're Jonah. Mercy to God's enemies. That simple message was more than sufficient to reach 120,000 proud, violent, idol-worshiping pagans in an instant. An entire, an entire city that Jonah was, would have gladly written off. But an entire city that God did not. Oh, God, make us merciful like you are. And do that by reminding us of your mercy towards us in Christ. You see, God pursued his enemies through the prophet Jonah. God pursued me to a prophet greater than Jonah. God pursued his enemies and granted them the gift of repentance, which leads to our next point, Nineveh repents, verses 5 through 9. Let's look down at our text. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, and let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Oh, the warning, Jonah's preaching spread like wildfire wildfire, and a miraculous, immediate, sincere, and city-wide response occurred. The entire population believes God's message and the entire population repents. And then they do the normal religious things of their day. What they would do anytime they were showing genuine repentance. They fasted. They gave up all food and all water for a time. And they were so scared. They were scared and serious enough to not even allow their livestock to graze or to drink water. They fasted. And then they put on sackcloth. Yep, the livestock too. They put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was a thick, coarse cloth that was made from the hair of goats. So, nothing to eat, nothing to drink, and you're wearing goat hair. And they left their position, their posture of ease. And they sat on the ground, down with the dust and the ashes from cooking. These three things were the traditional religious symbols of humility, of grieving over their sin, and of rejecting the normal comforts and the normal pleasures of life. And yes, even the king of the city, who was probably not the emperor of the empire, but a provincial governor, the king of that city, he repented as well, from the mighty to the least. Everybody believed that the threat was real, And that the God of Jonah had the ability to do all that he threatened. And the king had a hurried consultation with his highest officials. And they issued a formal decree throughout the city. Along with an order. An order for urgent prayer. And they made this amazing confession of guilt. And they coupled it with a sincere desire to make an appropriate moral change. An official command to turn from their wicked ways and to cease the arbitrary and aggressive violence that the Assyrians were known for. Heartfelt repentance becomes civil law. Talk about common grace. But the decree does not stop there. 
it also acknowledges their need of God's mercy. Oh, they understood what they deserved. And they understood that their repentance would not be an autopilot securing of God's mercy. Oh, they knew God was not like their gods. God was under no obligation to respond to their repentance. Oh, my. God was under no obligation to respond to their repentance. God was not a, a machine that they could manipulate into performing their will. That's what you did with gods back then. If you said the right thing and did the right stuff, you could manipulate the deity. God was not a capital D, a small D deity. It's God. He's sovereign. He calls the shots. He makes the rules. And he dispenses grace and mercy. They knew that no one, check this out, they knew that no one can demand mercy. You can demand wages. You can demand what you're due. Here's what you can't demand. If you demand mercy, it it ceases being mercy. It's graciously granted to those, by its definition, It's graciously granted to those who do not deserve it. The clock is ticking. They are waiting, which leads us to our final point in the text. God relents. Verse 10. Let's look down at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Spoiler alert. We are about to swim in the deep water, the deep end of the theological pool right now. You're going to have answers as you look at this. You're going to have questions as you look at this this week. That What about, what about, what about, what about, what about? I'm not going to be able to answer them all. That would take like a week. Unless you want to sit here for a solid week. The school system would not be happy. So we're not going to answer all your questions. But, oh, ask your community group leader. They'll do a great job. <laughs> God responds to their humble obedience. Actually, they would. God responds to their humble obedience and he grants mercy. The threatened destruction will not occur. No fire nor brimstone will fall from the sky. No foreign armies will invade and kill all the people and all the animals. God's merciful threat. God's gracious warning. God's powerful word had achieved its foreordained end. They repented and God... See, God gave them... You're thinking that God gave them mercy because they repented. No, no. God gave them mercy by sending the messenger with the message. And then he granted them repentance. And then God granted them further mercy by sparing them from immediate and complete destruction. They repented. God relented. Now here's the 50 cent question. This one where I'm on thin ice, this is a, a, the opinion meter is going off now. So different people think different things, but here's what I think. Feel free to disagree. Will we see the Ninevites in heaven? Remember several Sundays ago, Al talked about, which I agree with, that we'll probably see that little handful of sailors in heaven? I think we will. But will we see the Ninevites in heaven? I don't think so. Just don't think so. Well, Jim, why don't you think so? Well, remember our little example at the beginning while you were finding the book of Jonah? How religious, but not Christian religious but unbelieving folks can have standards and ethics that are genuinely informed by God's word. They fear God in some sense, but they do not follow God. Welcome to Nineveh. Remember, the pagan sailors looked to have given up their false gods and followed the true God, while the Ninevites seemed to have only believed that Jonah's God existed, that he was angry with them, and he could make good his threat. Oh, they believed God. 
Their repentance was real, and it saved them from immediate destruction, but it didn't save them from hell. It saved them from immediate destruction, but not final destruction. Now, why would I think that? Well, a couple reasons in the text. The text is silent on some things, but the silence kind of screams. No mention is made of forsaking their idols. No mention is made of pardon or forgiveness. And the moral change, it was very short-lived. In just a few decades, some of those same folks who are repenting today will be attacking Israel later. Oh, they did turn from specific sins, but they did not turn to God. Genuine moral reform, genuine moral reform, is not the same as genuine conversion. It doesn't produce a new heart, a new mindset, a new outlook. It doesn't result in faithfully following the Lord. It doesn't mean that you love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not, not perfectly, but faithfully and really genuinely. So, was God's mercy towards them an injustice? Remember, Jonah, who we're going to find out in the next chapter, Jonah would have loved to have seen them all nuked in an instant. They were wicked. They were a serious threat to Israel. Why, Jonah's thinking, would God even spare them for a moment? Especially the God who knows what's going to happen in a few decades. Does mercy negate, erase, does not equal justice? Is mercy a form of injustice? Does God really not care about sin? He gave them mercy. Well, of course not. Not at all. I love what one author said. God can and does refrain from immediately imposing the full consequence of sin. And I'm glad that he does. Ezekiel says the soul that sins dies. That means probably knowing me when I was about three or four years old or maybe two when I threw this temper tantrum in the crib that my parents told me about and I knew what I was doing. I didn't know that. I don't remember, but I knew what I was doing. Or let's go forward to five or seven or ten or even if you're from a background that says the age of accountability, 12. Okay, great. Let's fast forward to whatever age you want. The minute you sin, you should have dropped dead and been burning in hell forever. The soul that sins dies. Ask Adam and Eve. But he postpones the immediate consequence to give them time. The kindness of God and not imposing the full consequence has been to reveal his mercy and to lead them to repentance. Tell you what, I'm glad I'm not, I'm glad God's not like Jonah. I'm glad God's not like me when I just write people off. I'm glad God's like God or I'd be burning in hell right now. Think about that. Oh, God, make me as merciful as you are. Remind me of your patient kindness towards me that led me at 15 years old to repentance. Remind me of your patience, kindness, and all the things you did for me. All the things you did to me with a new heart and a new nature. All the things you did because of me. You died and you bore all of my sins. Remind me, Lord, that you accepted the curse on yourself, the curse that I deserve for breaking the law or for not fulfilling it totally in all my mind, heart, soul, strength, all the time, every moment, every thought. The only one that did that was Jesus, and yet he was hung on Calvary's tree in my place for my sin, and that was placed on him and all of his righteous reward. I get, what's up with that? Welcome to Mercy 101. That's how we become merciful, is remember what mercy's been done to us. Jonah just gets spit out of a whale. And in one chapter, he's not going to be happy about God giving the Ninevites mercy. I got a Jonah living in me. How about you? Justice is always served. Mercy does not negate justice. Justice is always served. It's either postponed until the day of judgment or it's poured out on Christ. There's only two things. If you're a Christian and you've been given mercy, let me tell you what, God is just and he's the justifier of you. He doesn't wink at your sin, current, future, or past. But all of your sin has been placed on him, and all of God's wrath was poured out on Christ. 
So justice is served while he's busy mercifully, compassionately justifying you, declaring you just. If you're not a Christian in this room, let me tell you, here's what's going on. Life's doing good. You just got a new car. God's giving you a new girlfriend. You got a new job and a down economy. You deserve for the ground to open up, swallow you right into hell. And life is going good. What's up with that? Justice is being postponed. You're giving mercy. So you can have time to repent. Respond to Christ. Do more than the Ninevites did. Not just stop smoking weed, but follow Jesus. Otherwise, justice, fully and finally, will be served on the day of judgment when you'll be banished from God's presence forever and you'll suffer eternal torment in something the Bible calls the lake of fire and it'll never end and there'll never be a second chance. Poured out, postponed. If it's been poured out and you're a Christian, God's wrath has been poured out. Let us thank God he's washed away my sin once his enemy, now seated at his table, having communion with him. Jesus, thank you. Or it's being postponed, but the wrath of God will surely come on you. Flee from that and run to Jesus. Back to our story. Oh, and do that now. In our last few minutes, there's the text. What do we do with all this data? I mean, isn't it cool we know who the Assyrians are and who the Ninevites were? And, and wow, look what God... Okay, what, what do I take home with me? All right, pop up the next slide. All right, we're going to look at the three things. I want us to remember the last one. So we've, we've looked at, at, at um, the response of, of Jonah. We've looked at the repentance of the city and God relenting. We want to remember, but we're just going to leave that there. I'm going to walk through some things that for me anyway, here's what I had to take away. Under respond. <laughs> here's what I liked about the text. God can rehabilitate me. He can use me when I'm rebellious or, and I repent, or reluctant, and I need to grow. Oh, I'm never thrown on the shelf forever. I am 54 years old. Sad, I got to think about that. I'm 54 years old. I've committed more sins than most of you that are 35 in the room because I've had more time and grade. I know how to do it. My marriage sense? <laughs> I'll blow you out of the water. We've been married 35 years. There's mercy living with me. Okay? But I know God can use me still. I know he'll never leave me or forsake me. I know he's merciful. I know Jonah. I know Peter. I know folks who've preached the gospel to me or people I've preached the gospel to or had to talk to about Jesus against my will when I'm in rebellion because they're asking me something and I've got to share. Oh, hated that when I was in rebellion. I just hated that. God would set me up. Okay, here's someone talking to you about Christ. <laughs> what are you going to do? I've got a Jonah inside of me. I'm wondering if God is really like me. Write me off. Second-rate Christian the rest of your life. Jonah was wrong. And so is the Jonah inside of you. How about the next one? Relent. God, re oh, excuse me, repent. Oh, well, that's back to where we were. I've got Ninevites living beside me. Remember, this whole thing is about connecting with the Ninevites beside you. You got them across the street, you got them next door. They don't care. They don't care. They just don't care. And it's scary. They're going to swallow you alive. If you walk across the street, particularly if you're a white boy like me and you meet the ex Hylia cop who now lives across the street from me, you got to decide what am I going to do? His arms are bigger than my legs, <laughs> his wife drives a truck larger than my car. An SUV. Everybody here's got an SUV. So, so here we are. What do you do? Ah, whatever. I've already passed from life to death. I mean, from death to life. <laughs> Just checking if you were paying attention. 
I got a message. My job is to deliver it. When and how, not, hi, my name's Jim. It was great. He introduces himself as Ralph. And I'm thinking, you ain't Ralph. And I ask him, Raphael? He looked at me, yeah, white boy. And, you know, and that's what he's thinking. And, and we, we shake hands. Well, I've got to wait for that opportunity, but I want to be waiting for that opportunity to connect with Raphael, who's living with his girlfriend. Waitley finds out what I do for a living. I am dancing all around that because I don't want him to know. Because he's going to assume you're a Jonah. No, I want to be like Christ. I don't want to be surprised when people respond to the gospel. I certainly don't want to be self-righteous about them. They're just Ninevites. What's the big deal? I was an enemy of God. Get over it, Jim, and reach out. Oh, and I'm reluctant like Jonah, scared to death. I get that. God's greater, and he'll help folks like you and me. And then relent. I've got to remember that God is more merciful than me. And I want to conform to his image. When I look at that, I'm just like, oh, Lord, you are so merciful to me. I'm not being merciful to my wife or to my kids or to my friends or somebody on the road that cuts me off and just waves with one finger. I am just... No, God is more merciful than I am. Guess what? It's an invitation. I get to conform to his image while I am so grateful he's not like me. I'm so glad he's not like me. I want to be like him. And the amazing thing is, he's got the goods to make me like him. And then finally, and this is the most important thing, remember. I want us to remember what Jonah forgot. I want us to remember what Jonah forgot. I was shown mercy. I've got friends who've done moral reformation. They've heard the gospel. They've been to church. They've walked an aisle. I've got relatives. My dad. I don't think my dad is a Christian. My grandfather was one of those southern rednecks I was talking about earlier. God could have saved him at the last moment. I get that. But I, I was with him pretty to the end. Not to the very end. I don't know what's going on in his heart. But I'm not expecting to see my granddad in heaven. And I loved him. Here's the question. Granddad did moral reformation. He stopped being a drunk. He actually used to run moonshine. He stopped all of that. My grandma helped out a lot. Um, He stopped all of that nonsense. But reformation is not the same as genuine spiritual conversion. (laughs) Why did God save me? Why was I shown mercy? My grandfather benefited from common grace. He benefited from the moral climate of his little town in rural southern South Carolina where everybody was a Christian, even if they weren't. That's the environment I grew up in. Why am I not like grandpa and my dad? I love my dad. If you met my dad, you'd love him too. Why me? See, if, if I'm a Ninevite, worse than that, I'm Jonah. Worse than that, I'm Peter. Why do I get mercy? I tell you what, if I can keep that in front of me, that God has been gracious and merciful to someone who did not deserve it when he's a little pagan and still does not deserve it when he acts like a big old pagan? If I look in the mirror and I realize what God has done for me in Christ, I was once like a Ninevite, Ephesians tells us, very clearly, we were far off That's how the Bible described everyone that wasn't part of the covenant of Israel. 
and yet he's brought us near. I was without hope I was going to hell, and I was without God in the world. I, I had no chance, no hope, no God, no chance, no desire. I was merrily going along, whistling in the dark, on my way to hell, and I didn't give a rip. And I'd heard the gospel. I was brought up in Orlando before Disney. We heard the gospel. We had Baptist churches everywhere. It was a little sleepy southern town. Guess what? I'm a Christian. Why? I, I get the theological mechanics of it. I can explain it, and you can too. You've been taught well. That's not my point. Why did God show you mercy? Why did God do all of that for you? Why did he give you mercy and not the next guy? Again, it's the deep end of the pool we're swimming in. Don't go there right now. Make it personal. Why am I saved? And the Ninevites are probably all, 120,000 of them burning in hell. Why? Now, perplexing though that can be, that's not the point. It's supposed to produce gratitude. Then that awareness might just make you and me a little more merciful to the Christians we know. In fact, that God still shows me mercy every day may motivate me to show mercy to the Ninevites I know. Because as their king once said, who knows? But how will they hear unless we connect with them. And what will motivate us to connect is not a sense of guilt and shame, and you're not evangelizing enough. I mean, there's a place for imperatives like that, reminders. But I don't know. You know what's going to motivate me for Raphael? Look what God has done for me. Because I was once him. Let's see what happens, Lord. Your word entire city, 120,000, instant. Raphael, no problem. What's a highly a cop to you? Someone you own, someone you love, and someone you've called me to go after and connect with. Why would I do that? Because Ed Hoffma connected with me in 1975. And it was a kid who was a good friend that I just crucified when he got saved. We were supposed to smoke weed together. He didn't show up. He became a Jesus freak. I wasn't very happy. It may surprise some of you who know me well, but I was a bit aggressive with him. He invited me to church. God regenerated me on the spot. I took off my Confederate flag. I took away my Winchester belt buckle. I, I got that back, but I don't have this anymore. <laughs> and I followed Jesus and started carrying this big Hummer Bible that they had just released called the New American Standard. And all of my friends thought I'd gone off the rails. God had shown me mercy. That's why I want to reach out to Raphael. That's why I want to connect. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, help us, we pray. Lord, it doesn't, this doesn't end with a command to evangelize, as good as that would be. Lord, this, this ends with, thank you for saving me. Lord, make us merciful like you, but Lord, do that today by reminding us. Lord, some of us have thought that we have, we've done the, 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 the unpardonable sin of evangelism. We didn't do it every day, so you'll never use us again. We're not like that other person we know that lives and breathes evangelism. We don't connect like Alice and Corey have been telling us to. Lord, there's so many things we don't knew, do, and I'm reluctant. I don't even care. Let them go to hell. I'm busy. Oh, Lord, let us repent of all that. Put it on the shelf for now. You can use Jonah. You can use Peter. You can recommission me. And even I go in there with a halting message. Just a summary statement. 
Five words for the whole thing. Lord, at the right time to the right people, at your appointed place with your appointed message, you'll recommission us. And who knows? We don't know. That's mystery. But we do know you saved us and you're good and you're merciful and you're compassionate and you want to use us and you don't need us, but you want to use us. Lord, you don't need us to do this, but you want to use us so that we can benefit as well. Oh, not just the eternal benefit of those that we preach to or those that we have a conversation casual and small with, those we live out our lives so they finally ask, why do you have such hope? And we explain the gospel. Why are you different? We explain the gospel. We introduce them to you. We leave the results with you. But Lord, we make the introduction. Lord, we make the connection. Oh, Lord, help us to do our little teeny part. Because you accomplish everything. Look at what you did in Nineveh. That person we don't want to talk to, that's nothing. You will accomplish your will. And your word will go forth. And it is sufficient. And there's nobody we have to write off. Or we think it's too hard. Because somebody had written me off, but you hadn't. Lord, help us, we pray. But Lord, that starts. We can't give away what we don't possess. So Lord, let us push away all thoughts of what we need to do. And now let us focus our hearts and quiet our souls and lift up our countenance at what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, we give away what we own what we have, what you've given us, who you are. It's not a thing, it's a person. Lord, you dwell inside us, you dwell with us, we dwell with you. You've saved our souls from hell. And if that wasn't enough, you've given us a taste of eternal life now, looking forward to eternal life then an inheritance that's being kept in heaven, reserved for us. It's incorruptible. It can't perish. It's waiting. It is a sure thing. And we have your spirit inside of us. You live in us, God, to remind us and to tell us and to enable us to come to our compassionate, merciful, heavenly dad. Oh, you've done for us in Christ. Lord, that's where we want to camp now. We want to remember what Jonah forgot. And we want to look to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's stand to our feet and just worship him. Remember the moment, remember the day God saved your soul. And with that in your head, sing this song.